I've told you all before that my love of horror started with Stephen King. Making trips to the grown-up part of the library, checking out one book after another. One of these was Pet Cemetery, and it hit me like none of his other books had. The terror felt more real, and for the first time, I felt grief while reading a book. Real emotion brought about by writing. It certainly wouldn't be the last. What makes this book so frightening is the central incident that the horror stems from. The loss of a child. Stephen King at the time had recently moved to a new area that was very much like where the Creeds lived in Ludlow. The open road, busy with speeding trucks. And this thought of his son walking out into the road and being struck was so real and so frightening to him that he had to get it out, and so he wrote Pet Cemetery as a way to cope with this fear. At least it's something I've read here and there. According to the story, once he got this out of his system, he wanted nothing to do with the book. He had no intention of publishing. He simply put it away. Time passed. There was a deadline. He didn't have anything else to present. And so out came Pet Cemetery. The book was phenomenal, terrifying, and truly one of the best books I've ever read. You know, I'm a dad now. And that book to me is terrifying in a way it never was before. The real terror of that book is the grief. And the monstrous thing that it can become. But the scariest part of all is how understandable it is. I've read a lot of scary books, seen a lot of scary movies, and they're fun scary. But what I felt when I read Pet Cemetery, both as a teenager and, you know, as an adult, that's real terror. But there's something cathartic about it. This type of outpouring of emotion that you get reading something like this. You really get absorbed by the sense of dread, the, the reluctance to move forward to see what happens next, the abject terror that you feel as you read on, helplessly watching these events unfold. You don't exactly feel what Lewis Creed, the book's main character, feels. But damn... You really feel something. You feel it a lot. I guess that King wrote that to face his fears. When we read it, we're forced to face ours. But if as a writer, he can come to some kind of peace by having written that, maybe as readers, we can too. I'm Albie Robles. And I want you to scare me. In 1989, Mary Lambert directed the film adaptation of Pet Cemetery, and it was also a hit. This movie had a significant cultural impact. I remember a few years ago, I heard a documentary was being made about Pet Cemetery. Being a huge fan of the book and the movie, I was pretty excited and I checked it out, and it was great. It featured interviews with the cast, the crew, 
and even locals who got to watch the movie being made, or in some cases, even ended up getting hired to work on the film. And this incredible documentary, Unearthed and Untold, The Path to Pet Cemetery, was directed by filmmaker John Campopiano, who happens to be my guest today. John has been the Archives and Rights Manager for PBS's Frontline since 2014. He's a great filmmaker and documentarian, and I can't wait to see what he's doing next. His long-awaited documentary, Pennywise, The Story of It, is finally about to be released. So here he is, John Campopiano. Yeah, my name is John Campopiano, and um, I'm a filmmaker and media archivist based in New England. And um, for my day gig, I work at PBS and do uh, audiovisual archiving and uh, rights management. And on the side, I shoot films and do a lot of film writing. I got into Stephen King as a kid and um, was terrified by his films, obviously, like like all of us, and uh, started reading his books. And the first project I worked on was a documentary about the making of Pet Cemetery, the original. Since then, um, you know, I've been working on a documentary about the miniseries, It, the 1990 miniseries. So Stephen King's work informed a lot of my early sort of interest in filmmaking. And since then, I've, I've pivoted a little bit. And some of the other projects I've gotten involved in are not Stephen King related, but are, you know, tethered to the larger world of monsters and fear and pop culture and that kind of thing. I mean, I think we're drawn to fear. You know, it's almost cliche. A lot of people say this, that, you know, we, it's, it's fun to be scared. It's, it's fun to go to a theater and, and be terrified and know that you're actually completely safe. You know, it's, it's like the thrill. For me personally, the attraction to fear has really started in kind of my interest in nostalgia and sort of a lot of my interest in writing and film work is, is connected to memories that I've had and, and experiences that I had growing up and wanting to revisit those things. So with Pet Cemetery, the interest in re- revisiting that through a documentary was being terrified and having like visceral memories burned into my brain of seeing that movie and specific moments from that movie that really scared me to death as a kid. And then becoming an adult, wanting to revisit that stuff again and seeing it through a different lens. You know, it wasn't like I was still terrified in the way that I was as a kid, but I still got that rush and I I could connect with myself at that age in a different way. The same with the It documentary. You know, um, the first time I saw the miniseries, I didn't make it past the scene with Georgie and um, had nightmares and the whole thing. And then revisiting that uh, as an adult you know, I wanted to unpack that. So for me, fear in a lot of ways is connected to fear as a kid. And I think a lot of my interest in also just as a film collector, I'm really interested in films that are kind of like for young adults. So a lot of the movies, the other movies that I grew up watching as a kid, like Little Monsters and Gremlins and The Gate, all these movies that kind of straddle that line of, you know, horror, but also geared towards a younger audience. And I think mashed up in all of that is being a kid, memory, phobia, fears. And so as an adult, I've been really attracted to revisiting that stuff. When we first started making films, it was the Pet Cemetery documentary. And the challenge with that one was, you know, we didn't have any previous projects to point to. So we couldn't say, hey, we're filmmakers and we've done this other project. You know, we were, you know, we, we had nothing, to, we had no, no other work to speak to. And so, um that was the first hurdle. And, you know, the interesting thing about the Pet Cemetery documentary is that we didn't start that project thinking it was going to be a documentary. You know, we were just going up to Maine and looking for the filming locations as fans and documenting them, thinking, you know, maybe we'd put a video on YouTube or something, you know. 
I never had aspirations to be a filmmaker when I was younger. And so like, it just never occurred to me that, you know, we were going to make a documentary at the end of that process. Um, so, you know, the, getting to know the talent and finding actors and stuff from these movies, uh, you know, with the Pet Cemetery film, it was, it was basically word of mouth. We, um, were lucky enough to get one actor. And then once you get one person, they can vouch for you and say to another person, Hey, you know, I met with these guys, they're legit, you know, you should speak with them. They have a cool project. And then it's kind of like a domino effect. And that's really what it ended up being over the course of like three, four years as we tried to, you know, get everybody we could. Um, and we did a pretty good job of getting a lot of people for that documentary. So uh, with the Pet Cemetery documentary, that's that was the approach. With the It documentary, it was a little different. We had work to point to. Uh, my co-producers, Dead Mouse Productions in the UK, they had done their own documentaries before we had hooked up. And so at that point, we had kind of established a little bit of a network in the Hollywood scene and in the kind of the horror cult movie scene where we could draw on things and draw on people. And if we didn't know someone specifically or directly, we knew somebody that knew somebody and they would make the introduction for us. So it's gotten a little bit easier. But at first, you know, you're just grinding away, man. You're just begging people, like, give us a chance. Like, you know, I swear we're not going to, you know, waste your time. And um, once you prove yourself a little bit, then it gets a little bit easier. In terms of getting scared from a film or a book, I mean, I, I sort of like it all. It really just depends on the the state of mind and the time of day and, and you know, the mood you're in. I mean, you know, there are films that, you know, it, sometimes I'm in the mood for just like a real kind of like visceral, like scare, you know, to be really terrified. And, and those films are, are out there, too. It just depends on the mood I'm in, man. I mean, sometimes um, sometimes I like the fun scares. Sometimes I like. uh stuff that's really going to stick with me. And, you know, like I remember the first time I saw Rosemary's Baby, you know, I really thought about that for like days and days afterwards. I mean, when Blair Witch first came out, um, you know, that had a huge impact on me as a kid. Same with, to a, to a degree, paranormal activity, because it was, there was no frills. I mean, when it first came out, you know, there, it was, it was like a small budget, you know, one location basically. And just sort of like the simple gags that they used, uh, at the time where I thought were really effective. Um, so it, it runs the gamut. I, I'm up for all of it, you know. Um, you know, uh, yeah, it just depends. You know, like slashers. I was into slashers as a kid. You know, we used to play Jason in the neighborhood with all my buddies, you know, and take turns. Someone would wear the mask and we would stalk each other in the neighborhood. And, um, you know, so it, it, all of it. I, I've, I've got an appetite for all of it. It just sort of depends on the mood. You know, I think sometimes horror fans can be really unforgiving. And I think some, you know, some people just don't have either the patience, you know, for a slow burn movie. But when you think about films like, you know, even The Conjuring, the first one, right? I mean, these are films that like have really no gore. They have no nudity. I mean, they really cut out a lot of that stuff that make films rated R or, or beyond, you know? And so I think that that's really hard to do when you think about it. I mean, to, to take a few thousand dollars, a couple locations, maybe a couple characters and terrify people. I mean, it sounds simple because it's such a simple premise and these films are by and large pretty minimalist. But it's hard to do. To do that on, on a shoestring, I think, doesn't get a lot of credit. One more point before you move on. Like, you know, the, the beauty of Eggers' films, right, is that he's creating an atmosphere. So the horror is kind of this world that he's creating. So when you see a movie like The Witch, you're not going to have all these jump scares. You're not going to have, like, a lot of overt, like, violence and, and whatever. It's, it's, it's the universe he's creating on camera that is part of the scare, for me anyway, as the viewer. And that's, that's why I feel like his stuff is so effective. So, you know... People like what they like. That's cool. You know, I haven't, I don't think I've had any 
personal paranormal experiences. I've been thinking about it. Um, I don't think I've had any personal experiences, but I mean, um, my, my in-laws, uh, have, they live up in Vermont and, you know, I'm in new England and we're, you know, we're rich with all kinds of paranormal stuff. We have a rich history of all kinds of things. I mean, from the Salem witch trials to the, there's a lot of lore in this part of the country. And, um, my, my in-laws are up in Vermont and they, they had like a pretty, these are sort of like salt of the earth country people. You know, my, my mother-in-law's from Germany. They're, they're just serious people. They don't tell stories. There'd be no reason for them to lie. And, and they, they've told me a story uh, of, a, of like a UFO encounter that they had where they were out in the woods and there was this orb that kind of came down from the sky and was in the woods and just hovered watching them. And as they tried to sort of retreat back to the house where my wife was at the time as an infant by herself, uh, this orb sort of followed them through the woods and, and then would like escape up over the mountains. And there, they had neighbors that saw the same thing and had a similar experience. And, you know, a lot of the time those stories have credibility based on who's telling them. And, and um, you know, like I said, my in-laws are, are dead serious people. And so that's, that's one story, uh, paranormal story. I mean, you know, we, we live here in Southeastern Massachusetts. Um, you know, we're in an area that's, that's called the Bridgewater Triangle, just outside the Bridgewater Triangle. And, and that, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but uh, a guy named Lauren Coleman, who is a, uh, a cryptozoologist based out of Portland, Maine. And he's kind of one of the best known living cryptozoologists in the country. He, uh, he coined that term, the Bridgewater Triangle, back in the 70s. And basically, this area has had uh, all kinds of UFO, Bigfoot-type sightings, Thunderbirds, all the kind of crypto creatures that you can come up with. There have been these unexplained sightings that have happened in this very area in Massachusetts. And so um, while I haven't had a personal experience myself, we're kind of living in this uh, in this area, which is like ripe with all kinds of weird stories, unexplained sightings and that kind of thing. So. So, I'm, you know, I'm lucky enough to have um, two, two of the screen worn Pennywise suits that Tim Curry wore in the miniseries. Um, the first one I got when we were up in Vancouver during production in 2017 on the on the documentary. And uh, we were interviewing Monique, who was the pro- the costume designer on the miniseries. And she had brought the suit with her. She had had it in her costume archives for like the last 30 years. And she brought it to the interview so we could film it. And we did her interview and she was getting ready to leave. And she said, she came over to me and she said, you know, I know you're a huge fan and a collector and I want you to have this. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, that's amazing. You know, she said, I've had it for 30 years and it's time to go on to a new home. And um, so she, she nicely gave it to me. And actually, as she was leaving, she gave me a hug and she whispered in my ear. She said, and she has a very thick French Canadian accent. She said, um, if I see this on eBay, I'm going to kill you, which I thought was like really funny. So that, you know, um, I got a kick out of that. And then uh, fast forward to this summer, uh, I got an email from her and she said, Hey, I'm retiring from the film business. I'm retiring and I'm clearing out my storage unit. And I found a second Pennywise suit. I thought the one I gave you was the only one that I had. Do you want it? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Like, of course. And, um, uh, she sent it to me nicely, you know, and, and wouldn't even let me pay for shipping. So she's very gracious. Canadians are, you know, they're a special people. So, um, so now I've got them in the collection and uh, I was touring with them on, you know, before COVID hit and taking them to conventions. I went overseas with them, with the miniseries cast and so that people could, you know, take their photos with it and see it and enjoy it and stuff. And uh, I figured it was better than just having it in my closet. You know, I wanted people to enjoy it. So so that's on hold now, you know, obviously during COVID. But uh, but that's yeah, that's the scoop, man. That's that's how that happened. Do you want to try to scare me? If you've had or have heard about a paranormal experience you'd like to share, 
or if the area you live in has a particularly scary legend or lore. I want to hear it. Send an email to scareme at albirobelesvoice.com. Scare Me is produced by Albi Robles Voice and features original music by Adam Clifton. Additional sound beds are provided by Stephen D. Voiceovers. You can follow us on social media. We are Scare Me Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. For voiceover booking information or to inquire about having your own podcast produced, go to www.albiroblesvoice.com. <laughs>